Welcome back, guys. CJ, are you going to bring a convoy of Porsches to the Bitcoin 2022 conference? Well, it's too far of a drive. I'm, uh, I'm in <laughs> California, so shipping a bunch of cars across the country would be a little bit uh, cost prohibitive. Although with the, with the car shortage, it actually might not be that bad now that I'm thinking about it compared to renting a car. So I'll have to actually do the math on that. Um, if they were like, Hey, you have to get, you know, you have to go through these flaming hoops of death to get on a plane. Um, I might, I might just pull, you know, the cannonball run across the country if that was the case. So I do have a couple of fun cars that I would be willing to drive out there. If you need That's a driver awesome. for another car, I am just north of you over in the South Bay. So we'll <laughs> gladly drive one of those cars across country for you. There we go. Well, we're joined by two-time MLB All-Star pitcher CJ Wilson, formerly of the Texas Rangers and Anaheim Angels. Thank you so much for joining us, man. And despite, you know, your past life working extensively in baseball, both as a player, as well as the work you do out afterwards, uh, you are very much involved in the Bitcoin community. And we just, you know, love to hear the story of how you first got introduced to Bitcoin and what was, what was your first gut reaction to it? Were you open and receptive or were you just sort of like, you know, what is this fake internet money that you're talking about? That's going to just like make me lose all my investments. Yeah. I mean, the first time I had heard about Bitcoin was probably 2013 um, through like the Silk Road stuff. And I think this, the Silk Road thing was the first time that I had heard about Bitcoin as a sort of payments use case. I'd always been a kind of hard money, hard asset advocate because I had seen people get wrecked in the stock market in like 99, 2000 and like the dot-com bust. And then um, I was um, actually, I forget where I was. I think I was at a, at a restaurant or something like that. And I was in Austin and I had just put a deposit down on a condo in Austin and it was going to be like new construction, you know, like getting in. And it was like this whole Ponzi scheme of like, oh, people buy in and then phase two is more expensive and then phase three is more expensive and that whole thing. And I already had a condo in Dallas and I had a condo in LA or not LA, but Huntington beach where I, where I like lived in the off season. I was like, yeah, you know, I could get condos everywhere, rent them out this whole thing. And then like the, the waitress was like, Oh, I got three deposits on condos. And I was like, what the hell's going on? So that's when I realized that the economy was like maybe a little bit overheated and everyone was sort of FOMOing in. And I pulled all my money out of all the equity markets at that point. And this was like in like, like late 2007. Uh, and the market continued to rise at that point. And I was just like this sitting on the sidelines. And I had started buying silver and gold at that point um, because I was like, hey, if the economy melts down and, and I was living in Texas. So, you know, I had all these people that were like, oh, man, they're going to kick out Bush. He's going to be done. We're going to get a goddamn Democrat. It's going to be crazy. And um, <laughs> like, we're all, it's all going to go to shit. So um, I was buying like guns and bullets and, you know, whatever people do in, in Texas. Yeah. And then when the economy melted down, my my buying power went up because my salary went up. I, I So I was like, oh, well, this gold thing actually worked worked out really well, you know. So that was all before Bitcoin, right? So then um, I found out about Bitcoin in like 2013. And I didn't really connect the hard money aspect of it because I didn't know that there was a limit on the supply. No one that had told me about it was like, oh, there's only 21 million. So I was just like, oh, well, dudes just like print this money and buy drugs with it on, and hookers on like Silk Road. That sounds kind of sketchy. I don't know if I really want to get involved with that. Um, and I didn't have any like buddies that were really like computer 
um, internet guys or anything like that. So I didn't have anybody really like saying, oh, go to GitHub, you can read this and da, 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 da. I didn't have any of that action going on. So I didn't actually get into Bitcoin till later, until um, after 28, so the 2018 drop, you know, and that's when everything kind of slammed down. And obviously it was national news when it hit 10,000, 20,000, whatever. So when it came down, I was like very uh, skeptical of it, but then it, it, I was curious because I was like, wow, it survived all this time. I remember hearing about it years ago when it was nothing, it wasn't worth anything and now it's worth a lot. And then I bought some and then started reading more about it. And then that's when I started like, like really doing a little bit more of a deep dive. And I would say just like anybody else, as your knowledge base increases, your confidence increases in the action that you take. So it's like you read a book and you're like, oh, that's interesting. You read a couple of blogs. You're like, maybe I can put some more money in this. And then you start kind of diverting capital that would have gone towards maybe equity investments or, you know, a rental house or something like that. And then you're just kind of plowing that into Bitcoin. And now I'm just a fixed part of my budget every month on salary is just putting money using strike and just automatically depositing into Bitcoin. You heard that even, uh, even MLB legend, CJ Wilson is every single day, every single paycheck stacking stats. So all you plebs out there watching, uh, be sure to do the same. I woke up this morning and did a mini stack like I do every day. So um, curious to know a little bit about sort of what, and I've had this conversation with, with a couple other athletes, what is offered by the players association to MLB players in particular, as far as like investment advice or investment criteria. I know mm-hmm. that recently there was a push in the NFL to have like the financial advisors all get accredited and same with the NBA. Is mm-hmm. there any sort of policy structure like that with the MLB players association? Yeah, I think like, so what, what we had set up when I was playing and we had negotiated for this and like the collective bargaining thing. So it was something that was there was the players check a box at the beginning of the year and then they get an automatic portion of their salary put into a Vanguard 401k thing. And then because of what we've negotiated with the owners, the owners have to match that. So if a player puts in 10 or 20 grand a year, the owners are matching 10 or 20 grand a year or whatever. So when I was in my heyday, I was stacking up 30, 40 grand or whatever it was a year into that account. And then obviously within that account, you can buy different mutual funds and stuff. And so you have a chance to kind of get educated on it. Now, there's enough dumb players out there that would say, oh, I don't want to put any money in. And I would say, hey, if you can't make it on $390,000 as a rookie, you can't make it on four hundred dollars either. You know what I mean? Like if, if that $10,000 at that price point is really going to mess up your life, then you're not only retarded, but you're also, you know, you're shooting yourself in the nuts because you're probably not going to, you're probably not smart enough to survive baseball and then have money coming in when you're, you know, 42 or whatever. But you have to think about this way too. So uh, baseball players also get a pension. So like when I turn 54 or 53 or something like that, like I'll be eligible to receive my pension early. Um, Now, because I played for 10 years, I qualify for the max pension. Uh, so if I waited till I was like 63 or something like that, it would be roughly $200,000 a year. But if I took it when I was like 54 and a half or something like that, it'd be like 120. Well, it doesn't, it like makes more sense to take the money now or as early as possible because like, you know, that way you're starting from up here by the time that that other one comes in. And, and I think a lot of players just sort of try to survive until they can get to the point that they have a pension, which is a terrible strategy as well, because realistically, most players' careers are done by the time they're 30 to 30 three years old if they last at all in the majors. And then that's, that's if they're bouncing in the majors and minors. So for me, I retired at 36. And so, you know, I had 16 or 18 years or whatever I took for me to hit that window, but I immediately began working 
And by working immediately in the car business, it gave me a salary and a chance to like learn a new skill all at the same time, uh, which gives me more optionality as, as I go. So there is there there are programs they're all voluntary and a lot of players like are like oh i'll worry about that later and that's the biggest problem is that your salary goes from here and then zero so you know what i tried to do with the car dealership thing was while i was playing i started investing in car dealerships and in other investments and doing little venture things here and there 20 grand 50 grand whatever you know so i trying to match you know have it so that when i when my salary fell off a cliff, there was a little bit of a budget there, like a little bit of a balance for me to, to catch myself with. Because it's very easy to get caught up in the fact that you're making, you know, seven figures or something like that. And then you start spending like you're making, you know, 10 figures because everybody around you is like, yo, man, you need to get that new thing. And it's like, yo, man, you don't need to get that new thing because that one thing now will cost you. And I didn't really, part, part of me was like, okay, well, I'm going to make some responsible investments. I did some real estate and, you know, things like that. And then part of me was like, hey, I'm young. I need to like I need to enjoy this stuff while I have the reflexes to do it. Because one one day when I'm a dad or grandpa or whatever, if I'm driving the the you know the career GT around when I'm 75, I'll probably kill myself because I won't have the reflexes to control the car. But also, um, you know, I'd like to get it out of the way just in case my wife like throws the axe through that idea. And so my wife happens to like cars, so it's kind of all worked out. But I actually sold off a bunch of cars because I don't have the time to drive them. And I'd rather have that money in Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining, investing in Unchained Capital or Swan or some of these other opportunities that I've had to do over the years. And I, and I feel better about having money, you know, and then having people like Joe Kelly and Parker Lewis and Will Cole grow a company, you know, and I have nothing to do with it other than just using the service. I feel better about that than I did one extra car in the driveway, if that makes sense. I got a, I got a quick question for you. So what's changed since the last time I spoke to you? I don't know if you were interested in mining or just getting started. And uh, what way are you uh, engaging in that right now? I have a seven figure investment in a mining uh, setup. You know, I have like a nat gas oil wells uh, mining setup in Texas. And then um, I'm going to be doing some stuff like in different places. I actually started a company recently called Model, which is Mining on Demand Limited. So the idea was to have a decentralized mining setup. So I made small deals with different uh, like hosting locations so that I could have different machines in different places. So that way, like if, if a tornado comes through like it did in Kentucky or something like that, that I don't have my entire operation down and not mining. So I, I would have like, you know, 20 miners in, in somewhere, 20 miners somewhere else, 50 miners over here, 60 miners over there. And just kind of, and as I get more revenue in, the idea is growing that pile of ASICs, you know? So I, we did like a, a small friends and family round, and then I'm going to probably do a, a bigger company later with the idea that it's, it's better access than people trying to buy miners themselves because they don't really, you can't scale by yourself. It's very expensive. But if I can sell someone like, a five like the equivalent of like worth five miners, then they're going to get a percentage of that total thing. So if we raise enough money for a hundred miners and you you contributed five worth, then you get five percent of whatever the take is. And then having something kind of like that, you know, to be a bigger company, um, which is sort of like my experience from using Compass and some of these other you know these other entities that are basically like selling mining as like a decentralized thing. It's possible. It's just not. It's it's like it's just, it's just different. And, and, and when you have access directly to get a six for a better price, <clears throat> you know, you take a swing and you buy a bunch of them and then suddenly you're getting the emails, you're getting, getting them offered for like the real price, not the, not the, uh, you know, plugged in tomorrow for $17,000 price, which is a little bit excessive, I think in a lot of ways. I'm kind of curious on, on this decentralized mining company. Cause you, you 
and forgive me if I miss this, but you only mentioned cities and, and states in America. Is there intention of expanding that or are there limitations to having like the network be globally secured so that you don't have to worry about the US government deciding tomorrow, hey, Bitcoin mining, we're done or what happened in China last year? Right. I mean, I would say that like, you know, there's always opportunities to throw money into company, you know, into people that are mining in very different Eastern European places like Kazakhstan or, you know, Russia or you know somewhere like that. But I, I don't know if I would be comfortable with that. I mean, the, the narratives that's that are coming out from some of these places is it's it's like the classic, like I just imagine Nick Carter having steam blowing out of his head, you know, as people are saying, oh, no, 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 now it uses too much renewable energy. You know, somebody like Norway or Sweden or something like that recently said, now it's using too much renewable and we need that renewable energy for this other stuff. It's like, yo, man, like, what is it? Like, can we do use renewable or not? And I think, <clears throat> you know, having having a little bit more insight into what happens in the domestic policy here gives me a little bit more confidence when you have people like, you know, uh, Cruz and Cornyn and Abbott in Texas basically saying, hey, we like Bitcoin. It's like, all right, cool. So I feel comfortable spending money on Bitcoin mining in Texas. I feel comfortable spending money on Bitcoin mining in, you know, in Kentucky because Rand, Rand Paul is like a pretty straight up guy. Uh, Wyoming because alumnus, you know, so like you have these sort of it's just like any other sector investment. If you're going to make an investment in into a company and you heard this rumor that the uh, that the CEO is throwing bunga bunga parties, you know, and like this crazy shit. And he's like, you know, doing shrooms and like whatever you're like thinking, maybe this guy's not ready for NASDAQ, you know, and you don't want to necessarily put your money there. So I think it's the same way you have to evaluate the the legislative process and the energy costs and the likelihood of natural disasters and all these other things with when you spend money, if you're spending 10, 20, 30, 100 grand at a time, you know, why are you going to put stuff in Georgia versus, you know, versus New York or whatever? New York's constantly trying to ban things. So I wouldn't feel good about putting miners in New York right now, personally, because I don't live there. And it'd be hard for me logistically to kind of get there. That makes total sense to me. I mean, you kind of touch on a little bit between, you know, the political landscape, the environmental landscape, the energy costs, are there other factors that you're sort of considering when deciding where you want to open up a new mining entity, if you will? Yeah. So I, I think a big, a big thing that I'm debating right now is the percentage of on versus off grid uh, as the mix, you know, for, for what we're, how we're sourcing or where we're placing ASICs. The biggest thing is, and then immersion as well. That's a big one. So as, as the hash rate globally goes up, you're going to have to do something to combat, you know, that to get more yield for your dollar and really like the immersion systems, tend to be pretty stabilizing they they keep the miners you know i've been doing a lot of research on this and stuff they they keep the miners a lot more uh functional and healthy over that lifespan and then at the end of the day like if you're amortizing these miners out so they have like let's say a, a 10 to 16 month payback period depending on what the price of bitcoin is if you can get an extra three four eight 10, 12 months of effective hashing out of these things because you're running them in immersion, then it's like, you know, that, you know, that's a much bigger pool of Bitcoin at the end of the day. And I think it's very difficult to earn Bitcoin, you know, like through a job or something like that. I mean, the best, the best case that a lot of us have is just converting a lot of our salary into Bitcoin directly. Right. So the way I explain it to people, especially guys, like I have a lot of farmer clients that are here in Fresno. And when we talk about this type of stuff, we'll do meetups or barbecues or whatever. I say, listen, like, okay, today's price, I'm looking at it, it's like $38,630. Like, that's what Bitcoin is literally right now. It's like a nice, 
nice green wick for, you know, up about $1,500 in the last couple hours or whatever, right? But if I was able to effectively mine Bitcoin for $18,000 per Bitcoin, then that would be obviously a much better deal. And so it's just about having a different time preference because you can, if you have a bunch of money in your hand, you know, if you have 50 grand right now, you can buy 50 grand with the Bitcoin today, or you can buy like five ASICs, you know, um, and five ASICs will eventually, if you get enough revenue in, you could turn those five ASICs into seven ASICs or something like that. And then there's a sort of curve there where it makes sense. The problem is that you can't do that at home in California because California real estate or uh, not real estate, uh, yeah, residential electricity is like 30 to 40 cents, which is criminal. Uh, it's awesome though that, that that Gavin Newsom's at the at, at the games hanging out, you know, at the NFC Championship game yesterday. But the um, so the the thing is that if you have a place where you can get five, six, seven cent power or less, then you know it really does make sense to mine, especially if you can kind of co-op and you can take a whole container with you and your friends, you know. Um, because then you have a sort of an operation, but if you just have five, you don't need a container if you just have five of them, you know what I mean? And so that's where there's this gap between the really well-funded miners, the riots, the marathons, the rhodiums, people like that. And then the CJs, you know, and trying to get to that point where, okay, I have to think what's going to get me to 70 miners in a digital shovel unit or a Adam's going to kill me upstream data in an upstream data setup, right? If you have enough to get in one of those upstream data setups, and there's like a critical mass, right? If you have, if you only have half of them, then you're not really there yet. So you almost have to wait till you have enough money. But then, you know, so there's there's a lot of stuff that's still, I would say, very nascent and needs development. For instance, like loans and stuff, because effectively these miners are creating income. And I've talked to Unchained for like the last seven months. I'm like, dude, can you guys just get like a like a specific ASIC loan program? And, you know, because I think that would be great. But, um, you know, that still doesn't really exist. So you have to go out, go get like a SoFi loan or like some other thing and like cobble together, you know, the money in, in order to do it. But you really do need, you know, right now, I think about a half million dollars to kind of get a mining operation started. Just just like just to start one other that otherwise you're just a sort of a hobbyist miner and then you're better off with like the sort of you I mean it's 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 okay if you're an oil producer or something and you have like the upstream data like little you know Chevy V8 running like eight miners or something like that but it's it's difficult for a lot of people to do that at home but bitcoin you know as long as you have a good a good miner if you, if you have an S19 or like the new what's miner you know uh, 90 terahashes or whatever you can actually kind of like outperform the cost of electricity so uh, you just have to be greedy and try to try to make a little bit while there's some to be made, you know, before, before Sailor buys it all up. I think uh, not only is Sailor going to buy it all up, but you kind of touch on the fact that, you know, today, right now, 2022, it's going to cost you half a million dollars to really start up your own mining facility capabilities to keep up with these big dogs. These big dogs aren't just like sitting still. I think Mara uh, Marathon and Riot both have intentions of increasing their hash rate almost 10 X this for by the end mm. of this year, like that, that level of growth, where, or how do individual miners who maybe don't necessarily have, have had the uh, experience or the income levels of an MLB pitcher, how do they get started? You also touched on a little bit about the fact that, you know, the access to mining equipment, the cost of this mining equipment is already mm. so astronomically high. Like what, what are the new possibilities other than joining a mining pool? Right. So I think there's there's ways of taking what I would call like you can redirect your energy use at home. Right. So let's say you live in Idaho and, you you know, because Idaho is largely a hydropower state. I think they have like 100 waterfalls or 140 power plant waterfalls or something like that. So they're having they have power that's sort of nine to 12 cents. 
So if you have, if you can, if you can get a, if you can go on the internet and you go to Kaboom Racks or one of these other, you know, people that's selling miners, you can get maybe two or three of these things and you can set it up at home in a sort of like homemade enclosure. Now in mining is still at, like mining at home is very much, uh, I would say like early days in the same sense that before ledger, uh, you had to have a wallet, you know, running on your laptop or something like that. Right. You didn't really have, they didn't have like the sort of uh, the level of hardware wallets that and, and phone wallets today, 50x what they had, you know, 10 years ago in, in Bitcoin, right? So in the same sense, like there's there's these different things coming out, like upstream has the black box coming out, or you can basically like plug two S19s in and like have it sitting outside your house and lock it. And no one really knows what's happening. You know, like you don't tell your neighbors or whatever, and you just have your own little mining thing happening, right? And if you're mining and you have two S19s running, so let's say, you know, 180 or 200 terahashes, you know, going, um, you're going to get Bitcoin yield. Now, the question is, can you take it to the next step, like Coin Heated, the guy in Minnesota, and can you use some of that heat that's being generated and then like heat your water, heat your pool, you know, like, like, you know, like, create a box where you're heating your clothes and then instead of running a dryer you're just using the asics to dry your clothes i mean there's like these other things that you can kind of diy combine and use sort of caveman tech which is basically a heat source and then like what needs a heat source you know do you need a heat source at home and then like how do you work that with some copper tubing and some you know heat exchangers you can you see there's guys online that are doing this already right so there's guys online that are doing this type of stuff and i think if you're looking at it, the net cost of heating your house, you know, and it is like whatever. And if you can absorb that and get paid in Bitcoin to do it, then it makes sense to, to, to try these different these different ways of doing it, especially if you're at that sort of six to 12 cent residential power and you have like one miner or something like that. But it really is the case where you have to do the research yourself to find the source of the ASICs, because if you just FOMO into a purchase on an ASIC and you pay $17,000 for something that's hosted in Vladivostok or something like that. Okay, that might be great in terms of the fact that it's online today, but you know the payback period now, now is like 24 months on that thing as opposed to 16 or 12 or whatever else. So you have to search. And so just doing a little bit of research on where to buy these things is actually one of the best things you can do. And trying to find the better price is actually a better, you're, you're gonna get yourself a better deal all the time. You know, And then the, the $8,000 or $5,000 you save or whatever it is, that really becomes like, like it's hard to make $5,000 with Bitcoin mining. You know, it takes, it's, it's a couple petahashes collectively, you know, over a fixed period of time to do that. So that being said, I do think it is the most fascinating thing because it, it does, it does actually add to the network and it does strengthen your connection to the network as well, which I think there's this whole thing about people that say, oh, you know, you're making the network more secure or whatever, but it's really more, it's more your security that you're concerned with. And that's the whole beauty of what Satoshi has done with Bitcoin, which was to like bank on the fact that people are selfish and they're going to be self-incentivized and like, not, not like this holistic, like, oh, you're going to have a pet tiger, but he's going to be vegan. And like, you know, you're going to walk in the field and there'll be geese everywhere. And like, not this dream world, you know, that a lot of these people are trying to sell a bunch of these hippie, you know, world economic forum cucks, like they're trying to sell that stuff. Like that's not reality. The reality is that you need to protect yourself because someone is trying to jack you. And that's what the banking system is. And that's what all these other systems are. That's what the, if you're a small business owner, that's what the, the visa network is. It's trying to jack me for 2% every time someone wants to buy something, you know? So 
Um, I would rather have the money go to Square and use Cash App or something or, or Spiral or Block or whatever it's called these days, whatever geometric shape Jack has taken um, in the metaverse, you know, but I would rather have them make money versus Visa because I feel like they're providing a real service, you know, and so there's, there's like these things that happen, but it's really mining connects you to the network, which makes your connection to Bitcoin stronger, which makes your knowledge base stronger and makes your conviction stronger, you know, and all that stuff. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you are a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Oh, I, I love that. I mean, you, you bring up now two examples of the way creation and invention has happened within Bitcoin mining in particular with upstream, you see them really capitalize and utilize this excess energy in the natural gas mining process. That was just wasted. I was explaining this to my cousin yesterday. He just, he didn't believe me that a, this technology exists and B that we just accepted energy waste for how long. And only now have we just started to like capitalize on that. We also have the example up in Minnesota where, and I know Dylan LeClaire has brought it up with, with his family over in Vermont. I know hot eight uses their mining uh, mm -hmm. rigs as essentially in-house heaters. Um, mm -hmm. What are other advancements or what are things you want to see? I personally would love to see, the, the lack of access of the clean energy that is collected in certain areas, not being able to be spread far enough. I'd love to see a way or a, a new system created that utilizes that energy for Bitcoin mining, however that is. Are there other technological advancements that you're looking for specifically for mining in that capacity? Yeah. So I think like, you know, seeing what slush does with brains software. So brain software is like, it boosts your efficiency, right? So if you're buying a hundred terahash unit and then you can run brains on it and go to 130 terahashes, you know, that's like, that's a massive deal because then you're spending the same amount of electricity, but then you're getting more hash out of it. Right. So if you do that with immersion, now all of a sudden you're running like 150 terahashes or something like that. And you might even be running less, uh, less energy because you're not using fans. So because you're not using the fans, you're using less energy and you could have a system where like on, on a big enough scale or on a collective scale, you have people that are using like a little windmill on top of their house and, and a little like in a black pipe with that just gets sun on it. And that heat differential and the, and the wind, you know, and that, that affects as a, you know, as a dry cooler for an immersion setup or whatever else, and you just have this whole heat pump, eventually we'll have, we'll have what I like to call active respiration on buildings where we're gonna have construction that instead of having a boiler in the basement, which one of my really good friends is a guy in Oklahoma that built the boiler that like is the, if you've ever seen the solar farm that has all the mirrors 
that mm-hmm. focuses the boiler. He's the guy that built that. Okay. Oh, no so sure. like, we talk about like boiler technology. He has a very nice Ferrari collection. Okay. I'll just throw that out there. But the, um, you know, you're going to have people like that, like kind of cropping up in the Bitcoin space, taking what effectively is a very old technology was say boilers, but then, you know, basically taking mirrors. So not using solar cells, which are most of the time mined using like, you know, rare earth metals and like slave labor and child labor and stuff like that, which is a great thing. If anybody's watching, it doesn't know that you should look that up because solar panels are kind of a, kind of a sham. All right. But if you have them, if you're using mirrors and boilers to make electricity, and that's like a much better way of creating electricity than solar panels, right? Uh, there's going to be a version of that for for Bitcoin mining where we're going to take heat and we're going to have mirrors or some sort of collection of heat collection device and that heat collection device is going to force water through a system which is going to power a wheel which is going to generate electricity so just sort of the opposite thing Um, there's no reason for us not to do that and I think as we sort of upscale the grid we're going to have buildings that are actively using exterior like pipes to cool and it might be a little bit more of a um I'm trying to think the right way, like more of like a Bauhaus design as opposed to like this sort of sleek Westworld, you know, twisty glass or something like that visual of the future. I do think that there's going to be a lot more uh, industrial design uh, towards like cooling and heating, you know, as as people start complaining more and more about uh, the use of electricity for, you know, uh, air conditioning and stuff like that. Just by moving water around the building using like a gray water setup or whatever you know, you're going to have a lot better use of energy and efficiency. And it just forces us to be creative to say, hey, let's do a let's do a creative look at this. We have a need. Our need is more power for more people, right? We have more people. They need more food. They need more water. They need more power. That's just how society evolves. So are we going to do nuclear? Are we going to like, are, are people going to kind of change their mind and come back to nuclear, which is the cleanest energy source, like net net, um, smaller nuclear reactors, you know, portable nuclear reactors, uh, nuclear reactors on demand, you know, power on demand. I mean, effectively, these Bitcoin mines, a lot of them are just in containers, which means they can just go on a truck and just drive somewhere. And so you're going to have this whole like pioneering spirit for Bitcoin miners where they're going to be like, hey, man, you got any extra megawatts? And then they're going to like take these containers and plug them into these places that might be building the, the power infrastructure for like a new community, but they, nobody lives there yet. So they're effectively, you know, the Bitcoin miners are going to pay for the power before anybody lives there. And then people are gonna move there, you know, and then the Bitcoin miners will be like, all right, peace, thanks. And they're gonna move, then they're gonna go somewhere else. Once they develop the base load or the capability for the base load, it's, it's, it's like, it shortens the payback period for the power plant or for the municipality from like, you know, 20 years to maybe like six years or something like that, which places like West Virginia, they're, they're looking at these types of things now. And I think that's where you have these states that are basically like Rust Belt states um, that are going to take a lot of money away from New York and California and places like that because it's easier to innovate with a blank slate and it's easier to innovate with a pow- with if you have too much power because then you could build a Bitcoin mining facility, a 3D printing facility, or any of these other things that are effectively like more automated and more futuristic because there's nobody in the way. You know, there's nobody in the way of you doing that. It's not like you have to build like cars or physical things. You're taking raw materials and you're churning them into either a 3D printed thing or raw electricity and turning it into Bitcoin, which is money. And then that can be, you know, distributed across the planet. Um, That's what I, I think. No, I, I, I didn't know if I, Alex was going to jump in. I, I absolutely love that. I mean, you do an excellent job of not only explaining how Bitcoin is essentially the energy capture or the the monetary value from energy capture, but walking us through, I think, 
different opportunities in that space. Those of you who are watching, like these are, this industry is brand new and ripe with the opportunity for you to go about it in so many different directions. Um, I do want to, to shift this conversation into a different direction. I know, uh, CJ, you had some time uh, to spend with Alex Gladstein down in DC, um, talking to different politicians. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet you uh, very briefly at the end of the year, uh, where we were sitting at the same table as Erica Rhodes. I was the jackass on the other side of the table. But I want to just hear from you about what what you're optimistic about, what that conversation and uh, opportunity with Gladstein in DC was like for you, and just overall, like what you like. If you had the opportunity to just speak directly to political figures, like what what is it that you want to see these politicians do? Either get out of the way, or what legislation help guide us to the direction you want to see? Right, so it's very complicated because if you think of the nature of Bitcoin and how it started, Bitcoin was started like as a sort of uh, as a completely independent movement because of frustration with the political connection to the banking regime, right? So I think the banking regime ha- has this sort of like cloak over everybody in DC, or at least a lot of people. And I think that's the reason why you've seen these monetary policies come out, where people are basically encouraged to spend more money than they have, because that's how they win votes, right? And that's sort of, so you're adding these elements together. And then you have these people that like Steve Mnuchin or whatever, that are working at these big investment banks that get hired to be in the cabinet, you know, of Trump or anybody else. And it doesn't matter what party you're with, right? It's all the same, meaning like there's this there's like this this vase, you know, containing all of the political and power, and then the bank is the one sort of like stuffing it with money and then keeping it sort of secure from the inside in that regard. But what happens is they put so much money into it that the seams of the vase are starting to like burst open because there's pressure now from this monetary supply going up. And what that does is it actually fractures the connection that people have to logic. Okay, so people like used to say, all right, well, you know, we have the GDP and that's like we're producing X amount of goods and we're going to sell those goods to the world or to ourselves. And now it's to the point that there's all this like, quote, fiscal policy where, you know, they're using the dollar to basically create these loans through the IMF and all this other stuff. And then you've seen basically El Salvador take a chisel to that and just go boop and just like break it wide open, right? So that that chisel of truth, which is to say that if you are using Bitcoin, you can be much more independent from like the, the overlords, right? And, and if the IMF wants to say something negative to you, you can throw them a finger. You can change the name of the country to El Hadlador if you want to, right? Like whatever. So the the thing is that there are some politicians that are fiscally conservative, right? Regardless of politically conservative, let's just talk about fiscally conservative versus fiscally liberal. Fiscally liberal is when you have people that say, oh, you know what we need to do is I need to invent a new program that doesn't exist. Like all these other programs that exist and a lot of them don't work, we're not gonna fix those. We're just gonna make new programs constantly and just add more largesse. And that's the MMT thing. That's the Stephanie Kelton modern monetary theory where it's to say like, oh, we'll just print ourselves out of any problem or we'll just create new problems that printing is the only thing it can solve. But then the systemic shock that happens to that through whether it's the bond market or the stock market or the housing market or this other things, that's where people really get affected. So I think there's some people like Lummis. Uh, or like Ron Paul that have sort of like towed the line to say, I am fiscally conservative and I'm, I'm not going to go for that BS, right? I'm just not going to fall for that crap. And then as that, that grows, you have a sort of like mathematically, 
you know, it's like you're squaring things, right? So you have the concept of one, and then it's like one and like a bunch of zeros and then one, right? And that's like one person above like taking a better idea, right? And that one person somehow then there's like 1.11, then, you know, eventually a lot of churning is happening sort of underneath the, the, the big number. So no one really sees anything changing. And I think this is where a lot of the Bitcoin people have a hard time because they, they're like, oh, we need to see things done now. Because effectively with, with digital stuff, you can just reprogram something or remask it or rewrite it or you know version 2.0, and then it's done, it's changed. Everybody accepts this new change. Hey, we have Taproot, it, that whole process is very short. Whereas with the government, you have like human beings that have interests, special interests, you know, personal interests, all this other thing. You got, you got Nancy Pelosi trading nonstop, just stonks, just crushing it, you know, and insider trading or whatever. So it, it's very complicated to break that out. So eventually what has to happen is you need candidates like Erica Rhodes, you need people like Robbie Starbuck, you need people like Warren Davidson and Cynthia Lummis, and you need people that, that get it at the end of the day. You know, you need Blake Masters from Arizona. You need these guys that are basically running that have a really deep knowledge of the fact that something is broken and that there is a solution. We don't have to like reinvent the wheel. We just have to adapt the better wheel. And I think that's what Bitcoin is. It's the better, it's, it's a better wheel system. And um, it's just more honest. The problem is a lot of people benefit from dishonesty. And that's what that's the, so Bitcoiners are very skeptical when anybody wants to get involved. So, okay, that's the background. Um, Gladstein is unbelievable. He is like the, he's the best speaker I've ever seen in person. Um, in terms of connecting a uh, humanistic emotional response to Bitcoin, you know, because you have guys like Kaiser and Saylor and, you know, um, trying to like these big like whale guys, you know, they're not necessarily like creating an emotional connection. They're creating a, maybe a triggering response where someone's getting really agitated or activated or hyped up or whatever. But Alex is like, okay, let's talk about this for a second. He's so calm. And he's like, okay, I'm just going to cut your arm off. And I'm going to cut your leg off. I'm going to cut your foot off. I'm going to stab you in the neck. You're dead. You have no argument. Thank you for coming. And he does it in such like a smooth professional way. It's so amazing. So he was talking about the human rights thing. And I was talking about the small business thing. And like, we kind of came together on that, on that topic when we talked to uh, like a, a this called, it was called the Financial Innovation Caucus. So it was members of uh, House and Senate staff so we had about 50, 60 people, something like that there. And then we each gave our own things and asked a bunch, or answered a bunch of questions from them. Prior to that, Jimmy Song and myself and Donna Riddell, uh, Amanda Cavallari, Becca Rubenfeld, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm leaving anybody out, I apologize, but we formed the Bitcoin Today Coalition, which is a nonprofit to like specifically go, to go to DC and educate people. Um, so this was kind of like the first instance of that. So after that, we were really inspired. We had some conversations with people like Ted Cruz. We had some you know, people like advising us like Parker Lewis or whatever, where they're like telling us, hey, XYZ, whatever. And then Jimmy came up with the idea. He said, hey, let's just write a book about this. Let's write a book that we can give to DC staffers because that's what they need. They like reading. A lot of them are nerds. That's cool. We want to provide education for them. Hey, let's make a book that's easy to digest, a really short, like to the point thing. And a, a month and a half later, two months later, he had a cast of characters. You know, he had Pete Rizzo and uh, Lamar Wilson and Gary Leland and Charlene and all these other people. And we came together and wrote a book. And so now we're actually going to DC to do a book release party and to sort of like, so it's been about seven months, I think, since we started everything. And we're seeing like the cake is getting taller. There's more layers to the cake now. We have access to more people. We're meeting with different offices. They're asking us better questions about energy use and you know illicit activity and you know uh, regulations and stuff like that. But it's 
it's like really Bitcoin is going to be fine no matter what we say, what we do. It doesn't matter. Bitcoin does not need any of the four of us or any of the million of us or whatever, you know, but what Bitcoin people, meaning us, what we need is we need legal protection from, you know, I would say uh, bad actor government. Right. And we need we need tax protection. We need you know all that other stuff. So a couple months ago, maybe Lummis started Lummis's staff started working on this bill and this bill is going to come out and it is going to be like, oh, man, I don't even know what to call it. I don't know. It's it's going to be the Bitcoin of bills, you know, about Bitcoin. So it's going to have all these different layers, all these different solutions, all these different things. And one of my favorite things is it basically separates Bitcoin from shit coins by like they want to have they they want to have it so that the SEC and the CFTC don't have like this so much dominion so they're like we just probably need a third thing and the third thing is going to effectively act as a bouncer like this so you come in and if you're decentralized you go to the bitcoin party and you get to hang out and if you're if you're centralized well welcome to the SEC boom go that way <laughs> and um you, you know you're a company you have shareholders stakeholders whatever then you go over here and i don't really want to let like too much of the steam out of the bill because it's really her thing but when i when they sent it to us for like a, an opinion on it i was blown away i was like this is it guys we did it <laughs> it's there man <laughs> you know and, and i think her and her staff really get it but i think part of the reason why they do get it is because wyoming is really like a frontier state you know it doesn't have a lot of the politics or the sort of the wishy-washy, you know, let's say the, the California thing, right? We don't, there's not like the, there's, there's not that whole like schmoozy nepotistic, you know, cycle of doom in, in that there is in New York politics or, or California politics in Wyoming. It's a lot cleaner and fresher, less people, more to the point, harsher, harsher weather. Maybe that just makes people a little bit more humble or something. I don't know, but they really do get it. I was about to say, I, I did have the opportunities to go to school in DC. And let me tell you, the nepotism is a, alive and well in that city. But what needs to be said on, on behalf of myself and frankly, the entire Bitcoin community, like, thank you guys for taking the time to write that book. It's on my reading list. I'm excited to get to it. But Pete mentioned sort of the work that you guys did and, and you touch on something that I think kind of goes overlooked. There's a lot of information about Bitcoin. There are a lot of blogs. There are a lot of books. It's, a, mm. it's really scattered. There's no Bitcoin curriculum, if you will. Mm. So it can sometimes some of the important information can get lost along the way. So you guys really did incredible work to just put all that information in one place for the people who, frankly, whether or not we agree with them, having the ability to make those decisions, they are making those decisions and you've mm. made it easy to digest. And that is a tremendous step forward for our community. So thank you for that. Um, I do want to, though ask you if, if you can maybe expose either the people or some of the questions that were asked of the DC politics on behalf of the DC politicians who maybe you were like, you just don't get it, man. And what were those conversations like? And were there any successful sort of flippages of the, it started with you didn't get it. And by the end they were like, oh my God, thank you. I, I need to call my financial advisor. I need to call my wife or my partner right now. We need to be yeah. in this. Well, I think one of the things that was great was I would bring my laptop to the meetings with me, right? And of course, my laptop has all these stickers on it and stuff like that, like terrible OPSEC, but it's got like, you know, cryptocurrency is not a crime and, you know, st stay humble, stack sats, like buy Bitcoin because fuck banks, all these like crypto graffiti stuff, you know, stickers and stuff like that. So um, I'm, at, I'm at lunch with, I can say this now because he's officially retired and he's going to go work for Trump now, but I'm meeting Devin Nunez, right? So I'm, at, I'm, I'm there with Devin Nunez, who's my local rep here in California. He's a super right-wing guy, like very Republican. You know, I have a lot of very like 
you know, I would say Devin Nunez supporter clients locally, right? Because I'm a lot of farmers and he's about water rights and all this other stuff. So I sort of explained it to him and he goes, yeah, but what about bad actors? And I'm like, what about cash? You know? And he kind of like goes like this and he goes, okay. So I was like, I was like, listen, it doesn't matter what financial system there is. There are, there will always be people that learn how to exploit it like PPP loans where, you know, basically all this money was authorized and billions of it went to bad people. Billions of it was lost and it's never coming back because they issued it too quickly. I said, now just imagine if for whatever reason, you know, you had access to give it to somebody in Bitcoin directly, you know, then you would see where it went. And then he goes, yeah, but you can't see where it goes. I'm like, oh, well, hang on a second, Tinkerbell. Here we go. So then I pull up mempool.space and I show him a really nice looking, you know, interface that shows how Bitcoin works. And I sort of explain Bitcoin as this, the way I explain it to everybody is I, I say like, well, you've played Jenga, right? And they're like, yeah, sure. I'm like, okay, it's reverse Jenga. As the, the transactions come in, those are like little blocks. And then all these miners are out there trying to guess the last block. So instead of being the dickhead that pulls the last block out and the whole thing falls, there's one guy that guesses the right hash and then boom, it goes in and then the block is complete. And then they get rewarded and then a new block starts. And he goes, okay, well, let me see what this means. So let me see what this looks like. So I pull up like blockchain explorer and then I'm showing him like this live. And I'm like, look, someone just sent 250 grand and someone just sent 80, 80 bucks. And like, and he goes, okay, so what if there's, let's say a crooked politician that has, has a son that likes to do paintings and no one knows who's buying the paintings. I said, okay, theoretically, like let's say that they're using Bitcoin and you have an auction because I was explaining it using like an NFT thing. I was like, okay, well, there is an auction site and there's someone buying it so you can see it happen. Well, then you're going to see that $75,000 worth of Bitcoin go to that address. So then you're going to know what his address is theoretically. And then, you know, you'll see who sent it. I said, so then I clicked on an ad, like just some random address. And I was like, oh, this is like an exchange address because it was like it had done, you know, 41 million transactions or something crazy like that, right? And uh, he goes, how do you know that's an exchange? I'm like, well, no one has 388,000 Bitcoin like this, you know, like, and they haven't transferred all of it. So I, I said, watch how they're sending it to all these people. I said, that's either a mining pool, like F2 pool doing a distribution. So then I do, I pull up both of them at the same time. And I was like, oh, that was actually F2 pool because this was like 6.33 Bitcoin. And he's like, is this some like hacker site? I'm like, no, this was literally like a free website. And you see him go like click. And then it was like, he was cool with it after that, you know? Um, it was, it was really funny because then he said, okay, well, I'm not worried now because if, if like we put, put a bunch of our own nerds on this, we can watch it. And I mean, effectively like that surveillance tool exists, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Right. Which is sort of part of the point with taproot and things like that. People that want to take better care of their money can, or better care of their privacy can, but a lot of people are just using Bitcoin normally. Right. And, and in an open way, I said, listen, we don't have any Bitcoiners. We're not really trying to hide from you guys. We're not trying to hide from people that want to promote American values of freedom, freedom of speech, stuff like that. We're trying to hide from censorship. And he goes, I hate censorship. So then it was like, okay, click. The craziest meeting that we had though, honestly, of all the meetings, we met with Newt Gingrich. And uh, Newt Gingrich has is early Bitcoin. And I want to say like three-digit Bitcoin, right? So like when Bitcoin was like in the three-digit price range, he was like, well, yeah, I bought some Bitcoin back when it was this. And I was like, you son of a bitch, you got Bitcoin way early, you know, like good for you. But we were talking and I was explaining my, my view of game theory, you know, in regards to the international stuff. And this was, this was a couple months ago. So this is before everything else, but I was like, okay, look at this, like heating oil in Europe, you know, like there's this Nord Stream pipeline and Germany needs it. They're taking their reactors offline. And I like laid out the entire scenario. And then he was like, okay, so what are you promoting? I said, well, think about it, right? If China's promoting their, their digital currency, 
as a way of you know their central bank digital currency as a way of like ensnaring more of that that part of the world if we provide the dollar and bitcoin as acceptable rails for payment for commerce and america's like adopting bitcoin at that point then we have the freedom rails and they have the totalitarian control rails and then a country that's not sure which way they want to go they're probably going to want to go towards dollars and bitcoin regardless of which one they want to use that's the that's the vector that they're going to see themselves on and he was like oh i like that okay all right you know and here we are with, you know, Russia invading Ukraine or whatever else, right? And so all this stuff is sort of played out. And so as you're having these conversations with these people, you're meeting, you know, national security advisors and stuff like this, like DOD contractors and stuff that are interested in Bitcoin because they have the same patriotic idea that, hey, America, listen, Bitcoin's going to happen. Let's make America like a Bitcoin land, you know, as opposed to an anti-Bitcoin land, you know, because who wants to live in an anti-Bitcoin land, you know? And then if we see the brain drain, because if, if you have enough Bitcoin that like it would change your life if you were unable to use it in America, then a lot of people would just leave. You know, a lot of people are just going to vote with their feet. They're going to go. I like you want to lose all those people. You want to lose all those potential donors and 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 all that tax revenue when these people are buying houses and cars and Lambos and, you know, paying for private school for their kids and all this stuff that Bitcoiners like care about, which is like the future effectively. I said, all Bitcoiners are like futuristic people. We're not like trying to get rich today. We're thinking about protecting our family long-term. Like that's the whole point. And then they're like, oh, you know, like you see these wheels change with them. And, but you can tell right away if someone's receptive or not, you know, if they're like, oh, I heard Bitcoin's a scam. You're like, oh God, here we go. You know? So yeah. I'm like, no, that's Solana. Solana's a scam. So <laughs> it's like, you know, a little bit easier. Yeah. I want to, I do want to shift back to baseball a little bit, and maybe you haven't thought of this, but you know, we, we tend to joke in the Bitcoin community, oh, Bitcoin fixes this with whatever issue sort of arises. Is there an issue within major league baseball or just baseball in general that you noticed that you believe Bitcoin or a Bitcoin solution would help fix that issue? And if not, no, no harm or foul. You know, I, I think one of the challenges with Bitcoin for just really anybody that hasn't done anything more than a 30 minute Google search on it is the tangibility of it. Right. So the baseball players are a little bit more anonymous looking than NFL players or NBA players. Right. Like a baseball player walks into a room. He's generally like a normal sized person, you know, between five foot ten and six foot three you know, like medium build, like maybe lanky, but maybe a little bit pudgy or whatever. But like a, a, a six foot 10 walks, dude walks into a, a bar, you're like, that guy looks like he plays basketball. So whether he does or not, you know, you just sort of assume that, right? Oh, this guy is a basketball guy. I think that the personal security aspect of Bitcoin is a little bit different than a lot of baseball players are willing to contend with. But I think on the scale of saying, oh, put 1% of your money in it or something like that, it as a financial responsibility tool, it'd be great. Because it really is a like a it really is a hedge against global collapse of, of all these other investments that, that these guys are doing. Um, a lot of baseball players, by the time they're making good money, they have so much disposable income, they literally don't know what to do with it. So they gamble, they buy stupid shit. Like, I mean, I had like I had teammates that were like, like throwing, like burning money on, on airplane flights to each other. They would basically like losing $10,000 playing, playing poker or something like that, you know? And I was, and so like, and I think about it today, I'm like, God, that, if that guy would have bought like anything responsible with that money, right. What would that be worth today? But these guys say that, say the stupidest shit I've ever heard, uh, which is I'm so rich, it doesn't matter. And I had plenty of teammates that would say stuff like that. And I was always like, yeah, like, let me know when you're like 48 years old and you've been out of the game for a while and you've had some kids and then you have to pay for private school. If you're so rich, it doesn't matter because I doubt that it's the case. 
a lot of baseball players end up just signing with like these financial advisor dudes that don't actually produce any value. They're not really. And I think if, if, if they were a little bit more educated and I've been fighting for this for a couple of years now, actually like over a decade, because I try to get baseball into gold. I try to get the players association pension fund into gold back in like 2009 or 10 or something like that. And that would have been a great payoff, you know, today as a hedge with everything else because they're in like t-bills and all this other stuff the, the the pension fund has billions of dollars like no like no joke the, the mlb players fund has like billions of dollars in it and they they they've they've constantly taken the route of renting and not owning unlike all like that type of mindset a lot of times and i think it's it's cost cost the players collectively a lot of money the same way that it's cost all these other unions for you know united auto workers or whatever else uh, I think that like unions in general have a tendency to get corrupted very, very quickly. And if they're, I don't think the baseball player union has this issue because there's really good leadership, but I think having a little bit more of a Bitcoin standard mindset would, would really allow the players union to, to not only say, oh, well, we reject this proposal from the owners, but now we have so much money. Fuck it. We'll just start our own league. You know, like you're going to lock us out. Cool. Fine. We'll go play somewhere else. Like we'll literally all go. We'll we'll go do our own thing. We don't need you. You guys want to be jerks? Enjoy enjoy paying rent on that stadium, you know. And they would have more leverage if they had more money, you know. Right now, like a couple billion dollars isn't enough to get it done. But if they would have spent like twenty or thirty million dollars in Bitcoin, maybe a couple of years ago, like what would that be worth today, right? Same thing with gold. If they would have done the same thing with gold, and if if now, you know, you get you get this outsized return. And I think that's the mindset that I just need to get a hold of some of these guys and explain that to them, you know, and I've been rejected from that. But as I get more stuff in DC, now I'm an author, I have a book, so you have to listen to me. I'm going to pull that card on them and be like, hey, listen, I'm a published author now. I'm not just some idiot. Like, you know, I've got, you know, like all this other stuff. Because it's just a classic thing. Like until you've proven that they're wrong with like 10 things, they won't even listen. And, and that's what sucks. So maybe if I take a mining company public, I can finally get their attention. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. From your lips to God's ears, man. I mean, what you described to me about them just pulling money together in a Vanguard fund, that sounds no different than any other employer just offering you a 401k but right. with, how much, with how much money is in that fund. And our producer jokingly, but probably seriously mentioned to me, it's probably underfunded based on the way you describe players' mentality around saving and investing goes. I mean, I'm always a big proponent of financial education. And I was an aspiring sports agent for some time and had my own sports agency briefly in college. And that was a fun experience to sort of learn the dynamics between what your role is as an agent versus what your role is as far as like an advisor goes. I would love to see this. I believe if I'm not mistaken, and apologies for the ignorance in this, but I believe the lockdown is still in effect right now correct and yeah i'm fully in support of these players getting what they want we don't tune in for the owners we don't tune in for the stadiums some of us tune in based on the jersey color but like i i watch these games because i want to watch my favorite players play um and i i do hope that the players get what they deserve and if not like please go go play in japan like there's enough tv coverage there's enough money over there that you guys deserve to be paid and compensated justly but that 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 mentality though is like like i said the bitcoin standard mentality is like screw you i'm going to take my talent and i'm going to go do it over here right and that's what's different about the sovereign individual bitcoin person versus someone that's grown up in a very cushy lifestyle and the problem is guys get adjusted to this cushiness and they don't realize that the couch is a trap 
you know, it's not like no one gets ripped sitting on the couch, you know what I mean? No one gets better sitting on the couch, but the couch is so comfortable. So it's sort of like the process like sucks them in and they feel safe. You know, it's all this illusion. And then the owners just go, oh, by the way, whoop, you can't play for us, you know, and then they pull this crap and it, 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 it's, 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 it's all a negotiation. So at the end of the day, like everybody wins, you know, I mean, the owners win big time. They, they wouldn't be build, building billion dollar stadiums if they weren't winning right at the end of the day. It, but a lot of the owners, it's not their first cause of business, right? Because so which is to say they don't run it like a business. They run it like a, like a country club. So they, they run it as like a, like, I'm like Mike Illich who owned the, the tigers. He got rich because he owned little Caesars. He was like the little Caesars guy, right? Um, you know, Cuban sold, Mark Cuban sold a, a, an internet company effectively and cashed out. So he owned a basketball team and, and then, you know, but he's like a venture guy, right? So Chamath owns the Warriors with a bunch of other people, but he's a venture guy. So these guys don't really give a shit about how the team does in some instances, and they don't run it like a business, which is to say they don't even try to win. And that's one of the big contention points right now is that some of the teams are not trying to win. They're tanking so they can get better draft picks so they can basically like like double down on the bottom. They're basically shorting, they're basically shorting themselves so they can buy lower, you know, and, and buy cheaper. They're shorting their players so they can buy better, like cheaper players, younger players, whatever. And the the the, the payment structure within baseball it incentivizes that a little bit and that's what they're trying to penalize the players want to see that penalized you shouldn't be allowed to tank tank in professional sports so it's like our, okay cool we'll do a we'll do a 15 and 15 league and you're going to get relegated you know what i mean you guys want to fuck around yes. and lose on purpose get relegated bitch go to the second division you know you know like that and that's the reason why premier league football is so good in, in europe it, because of that because there's a threat that you would literally get displaced like imagine the red sox tanking and then like the, the the royals come up and from like the lower division of the pirates and like take their spot now it is the opposite of that the pirates are consistently tanking and they're one of the teams that people have issues with and the yankees are like that's fine we'll take all your players thank you you know what i mean so it's like this weird thing this power struggle between owners and the players basically get involved and like you guys have to talk to each other and we effectively become the, the 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 tool that allows us to bridge between the the teams that that don't have as much local revenue versus the ones that do. And that's 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 effectively what the players' union has has done. When I was negotiating these collective bargaining agreements, it always felt like we were in the middle trying to get mom and dad to talk to each other, you know. And it was kind of a mess. Yeah, I mean, you bring up an excellent point. I'd say a majority, if not almost all, the only ones I can think of off the top of my head are the Bus family and the Steinbrenners, who genuinely, everyone else like made their nut elsewhere. And these mm -hmm. are the only families where the business is exactly that. I mean, as a, as a Lakers fan, I will say I've noticed certain things where the Lakers are now populating or offering like they had some weird offer where they partnered with Halo. They do all these random things around LA, which they never did before. And the conversation we were having was, oh, they got hurt bad during COVID where every other owner had their other sort of business, their other lifelines making them money. These yep. teams that are strictly focused on the team business, um, they're feeling the effects of COVID now and they need to figure out how to cash in. CJ, I could probably talk to you for days on end. This has been too much fun, but the hour has uh, come and gone very quickly. I do want to, present one last question before we go from uh mm -hmm. twitter shout out to tommy for this one but is there a uh, batter dead or alive that you would love the opportunity to face and why i would say that like i would have loved to effectively pitch against a lot of the studs from like maybe the 50s or 60s you know using all the modern stuff to say that like 
Ted Williams or Willie Mays or Hank Aaron or any of these guys, these all-time greats dudes, I would love to have faced those guys, you know, when I was playing. But effectively, every generation of players is has all-time greats in it, right? You look at the Trouts, man. I, I like I put Josh Hamilton in, the, in this category as like one of the best was, talents of all time. He, he didn't such a good hitter with you guys. Yeah, he was amazing. Um, you know, I got to face like Mark Teixeira and Sammy Sosa and Todd Helton and uh, you, you know a, lot of these. a bunch of times too, right? He was yeah, still... I faced pool. I faced pools just in the World Series, but like I mean, you know, A Rod, A Rod. I like a lot of these guys, but it, but imagine imagine being able to like go through some sort of simulation that you were able to say, hey, I struck out Babe Ruth or whatever. Right. So for me, I would say the guy that I did best against, like that was like the all-time best guy that I faced that did the best against. I would say between Ichiro and A-Rod, like I did the best against those two guys as a, like for the, in terms of statistically what they contributed to baseball and, and statistically how I did against them. Um, I got I got absolutely freaking pwned by some of these like, weird guys that were very strange and like I couldn't figure out how to get them out I didn't face some guys as as many times like I think like Buster Posey was one of the all-time greatest players I think in a lot of ways and I think he really retired early he could have been like a Tom Brady guy that played another you know four years or whatever I did really well against him but in limited duty you know uh so it's always great to say oh I did well against this guy then there was other guys like Miguel Cabrera I did okay against him but like Adrian Beltre, dude, that guy, that guy crushed me. He was really hard. Like uh, I, I only played with him for one year and I played against him for all these other years. So he was difficult, um, but I like that challenge. You know, like, like it's not fun if you're just a bully and you're just picking on people all the time. It's, it's nice when someone like smacks you around and it's like, oh, okay, let's dance. Let's do this. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, I haven't seen one of those before. So, um, you know, I had some, I had some, I had a long career. So I had a really, like a lot of it that I would look back and say, that was intense. That was, you know, fantastic. And I wouldn't trade any of it. You know, I can't bend my arm more than this, right? That's as much as my arm bends as opposed to this, right? So like, that's it. My arm is like a, like it clanks when I do that, right? That's as much as it goes oh uh, because my elbow is so fucked that I don't have any cartilage. Uh, but I wouldn't trade that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy I left it all out on the field. Um, I might come back as a knuckleballer when I turn 48 or something like that, just to give it a shot. But uh, I think, you know, for the most part, um, I'm probably just going to ride this Bitcoin thing and then eventually maybe even get into politics if, if politics needs me, because it doesn't seem like these guys want to listen. Like, and maybe I can go up there and do my stand-up comedy and then they'll listen to me and vote for me. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, CJ, thank you so much for uh, joining us. G- give a shout of where can, where can our viewers find you, follow you? I know you have an, an appearance in the Bakersfield meetup as well. So for those of you or the Fresno Bitcoin meetup, uh, shout yeah. out. Yeah. This well. is my, uh, my, my, um, Twitter handle I came up with in 2008 is straight edge racer because I'm straight edge and I like to race. But, you know, if you look up CJ Wilson and you see the guy jumping with laser eyes, that's me on Twitter. And then you can also follow the, uh, we've, we, our, our accounts like restricted with Twitter. I think we've like gotten in trouble for like retweeting things or something, but BTC underscore coalition is the, is, is that. And then our book is, I'm just going to plug this really quick. Bitcoin and the American dream, although it might be backwards. This, this is our, our book that we wrote. And I think this process with Jimmy going through a book sprint with everybody, uh, it makes me want to do it again. So I'd really like to write one about, you know, like national security or, or something like that. Something that I like pay attention to. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it was great. Good times. Awesome. Well, CJ, thank you so much. Make sure you guys check out the book that everyone wrote, Bitcoin and the American dream, and make sure you give them a follow on uh, Twitter. Thanks, CJ. We'll definitely have to have you come back. Great to have you again, CJ.
Thanks, dudes. Appreciate it. Yep. <laughs>